It's a beautiful St. Patrick's Day in Cleveland. That's a rare moment. We have the parade back after being gone for a couple years. Big crowds coming, and I hope they enjoy it. There's a new Omicron variant that's spreading through Europe that could very well start to come to the United States in a big way in a few weeks, the experts say. So enjoy the maskless time downtown. You might have to put them back on soon. Lots to talk about today. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I am Chris Quinn, here with Lisa Garvin, Layla Tassi, and Laura Johnston, who's wearing a leprechaun's hat. You just can't see it. Yes. Laura, do you you have a closet of of, uh, holiday head attire? No, she converted a a bedroom into a storage for it all. There's a lot of holiday gear in my basement. You know that construction she's doing at her house? (laughs) Now you know why. (laughs) <laughs> All right, let's get closet. going. We got a busy Thursday, and we want to go down and see the parade from our windows for the last time. What was the Ohio Supreme Court's reasoning in rejecting the third set of legislative maps very late last night after 10 o'clock? Not sure why it took all these weeks to do what seems pretty basic and simple. Laura. Yeah, they just said the same same reasoning as before, that the Republicans on the redistricting commission did not follow the Constitution, that they're still gerrymandering in their own favor, and they want it done right. And they did put some more details in here about how it should be done. They want it done in public. They want the entire seven-member redistricting commission to hire one person that does this rather than the Republicans hiring someone and the Democrats putting their own maps up. And they, they want it done by March 20. So we got 11 days. Of course, this is going to throw that primary. I mean, there's just no way they can have the primary May 3rd. That's there was no way they could have it before last night. This is right. that was never going to happen. Look, the, the, I read it this morning when I got up because I wanted to know, is there a sign as to why it took weeks and weeks to get to this decision? And there's not. But what it clearly does is say Bob Cup and Matt Huffman have repeatedly violated the Constitution and the orders of the Supreme Court. Mike DeWine, Keith Faber, and Frank LaRose are complicit because they're not doing anything to stop it. But the over and over and over again, this decision says Cup and Huffman are thwarting everything they're supposed to do. These two guys, who we've pointed out, are not elected statewide. They're elected by tiny little districts, are causing causing the constitutional crisis by refusing to do what they're supposed to do. And Mike DeWine should be ashamed of himself because he has the ability to take it away. He, LaRose, and and Faber could have said, you know what, guys, we're done with you. You're doing Uh it in bad faith. There's three of us. There's two of you. Go away. We'll we'll get everybody together. We'll run the redistricting commission. We'll bring the Democrats in. They didn't do it. But the, the, the two guys who have caused this nightmare are Cup and Huffman. I completely agree with you. I think it's ridiculous that two guys from Lima are running not just the state house, but the entire future of our state because redistricting means everything for the next four to 10 years, depending on if they get buy-in from the Democrats, on who's going to get elected, and then what bills they're even talking about in the legislature. So, I mean, you these, the repercussions could not be greater for well, our state. We, and and they've just rolled over. The, the, the governor just says, okay. I mean, they're repeatedly violating the Constitution. We've talked before that there are methods. They're very hard to remove people from office for not doing their job. One of the things the Supreme Court majority, the, the, the three Republicans put all their nonsense in dissents to go rah, 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 again. But mm-hmm. <clears throat> but the 
one of the key points was that the Constitution says that they shall draft together the maps, Mm -hmm. not approve together the maps, that the seven of them, by the order of the Constitution, must work together to draft them, and Kupp and Huffman have stopped them from doing that. Yeah, and and it says that they're considering not just the letter of the law, but also the intent that the voters pass this with overwhelming majority, that they wanted reform. They didn't just want to tweak the rules. They wanted fairness. So, yeah, they've got to move. And then after they're in, there's three days for for people to oppose them. Then there's three days for the, the commission to respond. So we're talking 17 more days before the Supreme Court rules, unless... Unless the commission comes up with fair maps, there is a version that's fair that they all approve. Then we're done. But if Cup and Huffman don't change their dastardly ways, we've said from the beginning, they're the true villains of this story. They should be run out of town on Can a Can I rail. jump in here? Um, I, yeah, go ahead. I, I was interested to see that Maureen O'Connor agreed with the Democrats about those toss-up districts. Because, Chris, you kind of were leaning in the direction of, you know, they were, they were good enough you know that yeah I know. and but instead i mean they all said that the ruling said that that those districts were were designed to maximize the republican advantage and and you know those narrow margins and those toss up districts were unfair and i i was i was really surprised to see that but pleased that that she is holding the line <laughs> yeah yeah she's she's being a stickler what i don't get though layla is they knew that weeks ago when they looked at them why did it take this long it's almost like they were forcing the issue of postponing the election Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. by waiting this long there's no doubt that they can they can uh, continue with the election but um but yeah she look i i really appreciate maureen o'connor because what she's doing she knows that that sharon kennedy who is really demonstrating her complete partisanship she actually gave a speech recently and she talked about this case in a partisan fashion which really is grounds for disbarment Um, and that's likely to be our supreme court chief justice come next year i think maureen o'connor knows in the time she has left i'm going to require people to follow the letter of the law good for her it's a good move it's a constitutional Mm -hmm. crisis but make no mistake and they say it this is cup and huffman they're doing this. Mike DeWine, Keith Faber, Frank LaRose have a duty here to strip them of this power, put somebody else in charge of the commission. Hey, what about this? What if you put a Democrat in charge of the commission <laughs> as a <laughs> symbolic gesture to say we're going to work together? Wouldn't that, that be nice? That would be really interesting. I mean, I love that in Kennedy's dissent uh, with, with DeWine, she's saying the majority decrees electoral chaos. Like, we already didn't have electoral chaos. Yeah. I mean— and they're just trying to throw the same words back at them. And But I think Layla's right. We didn't know which way this would go. And we thought it was a gamble by the Democrats not to sign off on it, that they could have had 10-year maps that gave them a shot um, at, at a majority. And they were sticklers, and so was Maureen O'Connor. Well, this doesn't guarantee we're going to get them. I mean, there is the federal suit where a federal judge is waiting to see what happens and could pull it away. So this doesn't... This doesn't end it. The, the best thing that could happen would be for DeWine as governor, leading citizen of Ohio, to take control of this thing, steer it in the right direction, do the right thing and move on. But there's lots of ways this could still go south. The Republicans have not acted in good faith, not once during this entire process. You're listening to Today in Ohio.
The Ohio legislature was moving some months ago to create an unfair advantage in the funeral business, which eventually affects all of us, harming a lot of nonprofits like cemeteries and churches. Lisa, is that effort over? Yes, it appears to be. Um, there have been several changes made to this bill. It's Senate Bill 224 that was sponsored by Jerry Serino, a Republican out of Lake County. Among those dozen changes was the removal of a controversial cemetery regulations uh, on the amount held in trust when selling caskets for pre-planned funerals. Um, in For funeral homes, they have to hold 90% in trust right now. For cemeteries, they only have to hold 30% in trust for a pre-planned funeral. The bill was going to make it 90% for the cemeteries. And so many of these cemeteries are owned by nonprofits or religious organizations, and they argued that a, it gave funeral homes an unfair advantage, and B, it could put a lot of them out of business because they can't put all that much money in trust, and a lot of the money that they use for these pre-planned funerals, they use to maintain their grounds. So that was probably a relief to the, uh, the uh, cemeteries in Ohio. Yeah, this is one of those things that you got to wonder what was going on in the background. There was no need to change the law, but it would have greatly benefited in a very lucrative fashion one group of people and you just wonder how they got into the legislature the move to do this i mean it's a smaller version of hb6 was somebody paying money or something to get this done um it's not it's not completely over though right because they're now going to have a study commission report back to them right and and this still hasn't gone out of the senate yet to the house and there are some other changes in this bill like i said there were more than a dozen one of them is saying that families can get money back from pre-planned funeral contracts if that funeral is not held at the facility to which they paid the money. So that, that's a little bit of help for consumers. Yeah, I guess the pre-planned funeral uh, a business is rather interesting. I mean, you're something. paying, yeah, you're paying for something that's going to happen and then, you know, yeah. Yeah, it comes for us all. So eventually this will affect everybody, even if it's not front of mind. I think it's more front of mind for some of us on this podcast than others. <laughs> it's today Jeez, in Ohio. Grim. <laughs> yeah, I'm the oldest. Thanks. <laughs> I'm right behind you. Cuyahoga County has a lot of American Relief Act money to spend, and now County Executive Armin Budish and the County Council have worked together, think about that, yeah. on plans for spending some of it. Layla, what are those plans? So Budish and, and the council members outlined yesterday a dozen initiatives that they plan to fund this year using the first $27 million of the county's American Rescue Plan money. And among them are ongoing pandemic programs, shoring up the county's information technology systems, feeding the hungry, building a better workforce pipeline, and then remediating brownfields. This is the first allocation from the county's $240 million in ARPA funds. Budish said the county had been waiting to make these decisions until they were able to gather some suggestions from department heads, local organizations, and and 500 community members who weighed in on how the money should be spent and how it's most needed. In Caitlin Durbin's story, she lays out the full scope of 
of how the money's going to be spent. And but but among the highlights and the the greatest expenditures are nine million dollars to build up the county's workforce pipeline. They'll do that by building on the county's current manufacturing partnership program, which has already placed five hundred residents into manufacturing jobs, including people who have been incarcerated. Uh, five million dollars to help remediate brownfields, which the county says will augment augment state funding to bring the total spending power to about $25 million, and $5 million to help the Greater Cleveland Food Bank build a new $40 million storage and distribution facility to help the area's increased demand, which obviously the pandemic really exacerbated and, and shone a light on how important the role of the food bank is. So uh, lots of other things on this list. And good to see finally the wheels turning in the direction of of using this money for these transformative so, purposes. And and so on a project like this, something this big, we do go and seek comment from the candidates, yeah. that one of whom will replace Armin Budish. So we went to Lee Weingart and Chris Ronain, the, the two that are likely to face off in November. What uh, what did they say? Well, well interestingly, Budish said he he's. He is leaving $50 million in the till for the next county executive. And Weingart and Ronane were pleased to hear that because obviously they have initiatives they'd love to see come to life. Ronane's spending priorities were kind of closely aligned with councils, it seems, and he was speaking more generally to Caitlin about about those. But Weingart had some kind of specific things to say, and, and among those were, you know, his signature project, which he is is quite expensive and 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 uh, and very ambitious, but it would help ten thousand residents buy, build, or renovate homes in the urban and first ring suburbs. And, you know, that that truly could be transformative. And it's 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 that is really interesting to me. I've always I've always felt like a program like that that would help people establish their families and in communities of choice. You know, that sort of thing is is really interesting. So they were pleased to hear that some money will be left over for the next leader of of county government. You know, I got to say that lately, ever since Chris Fernand got the Democratic nod, every time we ask these guys questions, Lee Weingart has specific yeah. upon specific, and Chris Renane is mush, not, like nothing. If he agrees with what they did, why not say it? Why not say, man, I'm really impressed that Armin Budish worked with the county council to come up with what appears to be a very good plan. It's just mush. And Weingart every time we reach out, has thought this through. He reminds me of Justin Bibb. When we did the big editorial board interview with the candidates, as we asked them questions, every time we asked Bibb a question, he didn't just have a well-thought answer. He had a well-researched answer at his fingertips. And the other guys would, like, look at the ceiling and go, um, yeah, well, that's a good question. Let me think about that. And and that, I'm getting the same sense now from, from Lee Weingart. Lee Weingart has thought this through, and either Chris has not or he's af- afraid of offending somebody, and we're not getting anything yeah, from him. So. Yeah, right. Like, he was kind of like... You know, recovery doesn't doesn't begin and end this year. I think we really need to work smart with our dollars and make sure those dollars are going to multiply. <laughs> right. Like mush. that's the mush, yeah, it is. mush, it's, mush. It's, just... it's like the kind of answer that makes reporters' eyes roll in the back of their head. <laughs> right, and and really, if you're talking about the future of Cuyahoga County, you don't want mush yeah. mouth. You want somebody with vision and concrete ideas and. If he agrees with what they said, just because you're going to be running to say Armin Budish has been a terrible county executive, he has been. We've talked about it repeatedly. 
if he did something right, it's okay to say this is a really good thing. These look like great ideas. I'm I'm so impressed by how they took the time, did things right, came up with good ideas. Uh, it's a good story. Check it out on Cleveland.com by Caitlin Durbin. It's Today in Ohio. We talked Wednesday about whether a former Brexville councilman voted on a contract that gave him a personal benefit, something for which he was on felony trial this week. It's now official. He committed no crime. Laura, this is an amazing turn of events. What happened? Yeah, I guess it was not as cut and dry as as you thought yesterday. Um, but John- oh, No, no, no. I didn't think it was cut and dry. What I asked is, did he vote on a contract that accrued well, to his benefit? Right. Which does seem pretty cut and dry, right? But Judge John J. Russo said the law is not that, you know, not that specific, I guess, that this was a bench trial without a jury, so he gets to make the decision. And he says that the law does not bar public officials from all dealings in which they have some interest, only those where there is a risk that private considerations may detract from serving the public interest. So what he's basically saying is that he, I mean, Petchy, um, the, the guy's name is uh, Petchy, and he was a councilman. He voted to continue paying for a police, um, a new police station that his company was a subcontractor on, USA Roofing. So they were getting part of this $2.5 million he voted for. It was a unanimous vote. And the judge is basically saying he doesn't, you know, he's not detracting from serving the public interest here. And he wrote in a journal entry, there wasn't enough evidence to show that there was any criminal intent in voting for the contracts. I didn't realize you had to have criminal intent for yeah, this to actually I, be a crime. I and mean, the prosecutor had the exact same reaction. He's like gasped. He what? said, wow. And, and he tried to chase down the judge to say, can you put some more on the record? Because it doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, this is what Joe Simperman got convicted of they're doing the Mm -hmm. same thing you could argue there was no criminal intent by joe simperman he's just a doofus you know he had he had recused himself from plenty of cases involving his wife's company and then this time he did not i i was a bit surprised that russo who's who's known as being a pretty smart jurist did not make more clear what the deal was here and uh, you know there were shenanigans here the republicans in that town were Mm -hmm. sticking it to the lone democrat i mean there were games being played that came out in the trial but in the end did he vote on a contract that gave him a personal gain that's the law so interesting case yeah, and uh, Russo said he was not going to give any more explanation that it was on the record because you're right, the, the assistant county prosecutor said, wow, and tried to, to walk up to the bench. And then they put out a statement, which you don't often see an assistant prosecutor putting out a statement after a decision, I don't think. And he said, we're disappointed that the judge would ignore the evidence and the facts, setting a dangerous precedent, allowing public officials to vote on contracts that benefit themselves. And I mean, I see his the point of view here, right? If you say this is okay, what happens the next time? And then well, you what happens with Brad case? Sellers? Brad Sellers right. gave himself a tax abatement. Clearly, uh, got problems with the law. They're going to say, "Well, we don't see an intent." I mean, what do you need to see for intent? A strange case. I mean, th- look, the the parallel the parallel case is Joe Simperman. And this is two completely different treatments of public officials for pretty much the same thing. In fact, I would argue that Joe Simperman's case was was more arm's length because it was his wife's company, not his own company. Uh, but wow, what a what a what a spin! We should point out that both the defendant and the judge are Democrats, and in the town, the rest of the officials are Republican. I would hope that that did not play into the decision. Yeah, I, I really hope not. But yeah. 
it, it'll be interesting to see what comes of this in the future. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Is the Cleveland Clinic finally going to open the $1 billion hospital we've been hearing about for ages in London? Lisa, what are the details that came out yesterday? Yeah, this uh, Cleveland Clinic London Hospital was supposed to open nearly a year ago, but they're finally will be starting to see patients by the end of March. It's a wonderful new facility, um, part of uh, Cleveland Clinic's international outreach. This it's they signed a 123 and a half year lease on Grosvenor Place, which is an old building that was converted to this hospital. It has eight floors. There'll be 184 beds, 24. I'm sorry. 29 intensive care beds and also eight operating suites. It will employ uh, over 1,100 uh, care providers. They've been recruited from Britain. They've been recruited from Cleveland. They've been recruited from Cleveland Clinic facilities all over the world. The focus for this hospital will be cardiovascular, neurological, and digestive diseases along with orthopedics. And they're going to have a lot of fancy cutting-edge medical technology. They'll have a pharmacy robot which fills prescriptions, intra operative imaging for brain and spinal cord surgeries and uh, and uh, great care for people in London. What's what's cool about this is I don't know that anything other than LeBron James has done more to spread the Cleveland name across the globe. When, you know, when I moved here, I had never heard of the Cleveland Clinic, but in the years since, they've become this international dynamo, and every time they do something like this, takes Cleveland to a whole new audience and it's it's and they're you know they're the best in the business when it comes to taking care of your heart so it's a very cool thing to see it happening yeah and I I will say I worked at MD Anderson Cancer Center for 17 years and they were very internationally focused 10 years ago so they've been spreading their their uh, brand across the world and Cleveland Clinic is just right behind them doing the same thing they've also opened uh, an Abu Dhabi hospital and a sports medicine and executive health whatever that is facility in Toronto well, I'm glad they had the city name in their name because it helps spread our brand. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Has Cleveland Mayor Justin Bibb definitely decided to bring in an outsider to be his police chief? What step is he taking to find his new chief? Layla, we haven't had an outsider as chief, I think, in more than a quarter century. Yeah, the city on Monday began seeking proposals from executive recruiting firms who can help find and vet candidates for police chief. And Bibb hopes to select a firm by late April and start the search in earnest for a new chief by late May. But there's really no telling how long the search is going to take. It's obviously a huge huge job. Whoever they choose choose is going to replace interim chief Wayne Drummond, who was temporarily assigned to the job after Chief Calvin Williams resigned at the end of Frank Jackson's term in office. Obviously, this is a really critical time for the police department. They're still under a federal consent decree that's now in its geez, seventh year governing police use of force. And now the city is implementing issue 24, which voters approved resoundingly in November. That adds another layer of oversight to police. And Bibb obviously grasps the gravity of the moment for Cleveland police. And there are two ways to play this. He could choose an outsider with this with a proven record for change, or he could choose a leader from within who can help garner buy-in from the rank and file. And I would argue that's who we had in Calvin Williams. And I don't think it worked out very well. <laughs> what do you think? 
Well, I, I know, though, there are difficulties when you have an outsider of getting buy-in from the rank and file because they don't see you as one of them. It, it all comes down to leadership. Stra- you know, the, I was there when the last outsider flunked out. Mike White appointed Rocco Pelutro, an insider, yeah. to be the chief. And he was the leader. I mean, the, 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 the rank and file loved him. He was a guy that really knew how to, to mobilize people. If you can get somebody from outside that has those leadership skills where he where he drives the bus forward while supporting them, it could work. But but it's hard because they look at you as the outsider and how you build your command staff around that is a challenge. But, you know, remember, he came in, Justin Bibb, I'm going to change it. I'm a change agent. You're not going to get change if you have an insider who's always done it the same way. That's right. And, you know, there are a lot of changes that he has promised in the police department that go beyond even the charter change. He wants more desk-bound cops to start walking the beat. He wants more coordination between specialized crime units and and alternatives to the police-only approach when responding to some types of emergency calls. He wants, you know, when, when there's mental health crises involved, you know, that alternative model where you're deploying not just a cop, but some kind of, um, you know, a co-response with, with mental health um, responders. And these sorts of things don't always sit well with, with the rank and file and the union. And sometimes you need to bring in a disruptor who can who can make it happen. So I'm sure that's what he has in mind. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. There's no way we're getting through all our questions today. The Cleveland International Film Festival has some controversy as it prepares to open up in Playhouse Square for the first time. How are organizers upsetting the Playhouse Square projectionists? Laura, I was surprised to see this one yesterday. Yeah, they plan to hire non-union workers to run the projection um, cameras for films. And their take is that even though they do all of the work for Playhouse Square, this is at just Playhouse Square lending its uh, facilities to the Cleveland International Film Festival, and they don't have to follow the same rules. And that's the loophole, according to the union. But the thing is that Playhouse Square is going to keep using the same ushers, the same everybody else, box office staff, the union sound crew, the concession stand workers. It's only the unionized projectionists that are not going to be doing the same work. Yeah, it's it's an odd argument to make. I mean, they, they do all the projectionist work at Playhouse Square, but when the film festival comes, they don't do that. Is there that big a difference in the pay scale for the union projectionists and the non, non-union? Is this just a financial concern that the festival cannot handle? You'd have to think that it cannot be that big of a difference in an hourly wage because we're just talking, you know, a couple of weeks. This is not a long-term festival thing that's going for years and if they're paying union prices for other workers i don't understand why they would make this this big of an issue because it it looks really bad yeah i know they've been riding this wave of good publicity and all of a sudden this is pretty ugly and the the union put out a statement yesterday that wasn't over the top vicious and mean-spirited but it was an explainer to say we just don't get it they won't even talk to us about this we'd like to have some kind of meeting of the minds and they refuse to do it so Not good news for the festival on the eve of its big return. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How is Jumpstart, which invests in startup companies in Northeast Ohio, jumpstarting its efforts to get even more entrepreneurs the resources they need? This is a big announcement. 
Lisa? Yeah, uh, Jumpstart is creating what's called Jumpstart Ventures. This will be a group of seven employees that will be focusing on investing $70 million in tech startups and obtaining venture capital through 2025. Um, they These employees will manage about $140 million in four different venture capital funds. They will provide grants and other funding, and then they'll have an impact program that mentors small businesses and entrepreneurs in Northeast Ohio. Interestingly enough, um, there's been $70 million invested in 140 tech startups in Ohio. 82% of them are here in Northeast Ohio. That has equaled about $5.3 billion in revenue and 2,800 new jobs. But, you know, Cleveland and Northeast Ohio are lagging in attracting venture capital. We attracted $480 million in 2021, but in the same year, Columbus got $5.4 billion, and Cincinnati got $1 billion in venture capital so we've got some catching up to do i wonder why that is i mean it jumpstart it does pretty marvelous job i mean there's some there's been some criticism over the years that there's not enough money going to women and minority-owned firms it's something that they've been focused on now for some years but you know they're they've done that's a success story jumpstart has had success Mm -hmm. and i just it's surprising to hear that we're that far behind columbus and to a lesser extent cincinnati yeah, and I, I can't help but wonder if maybe it was the political situation here or the political atmosphere. And of course, that's changed because all of our major leaders, there's a turnover there. So maybe they see an, uh, you know, an advantage now. Yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, it's a hard one to understand. But this is great news uh, to get that much more money available to the people that are trying to start up Cleveland-based businesses. You're listening to Today in Ohio, and we're not going to get to the rest of our questions. But it's St. Patrick's Day. We should end early so people can get to the parade. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. We'll be back Friday, and we will wrap up a week of news discussions. (music) 